Alright. Well, I feel like it's one of those days where um, I think I know where I want to start and I have no idea where we want to end. So, we'll just get going and see how it goes. If you would um, turn to Mark chapter 4 with me again, we'll start there and <coughs> see what happens. Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you are doing in us, in our church, in our lives, God, and what you're doing in this generation. And Father, we believe that, um, that you are doing something. And even though our lives sometimes seem a little bit bland or repetitive or boring, God, we know that there's always something that you're up to. And I pray, Lord, that as we're here today, that you would help us to humble ourselves and to just engage with you, God, and open up our hearts, God, to the movement of your spirit and to your leading. We love you, Lord, and we want to follow you well, Lord. I just want to yield this time and ask, God, that you would really help us. Help us, Jesus and be here in our midst. We love you. We honor you. We want more of you today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Morning. See, school is back in session. It's good. I want to um, start uh, kind of where we were last week, and I want to think, um, just talk a little bit more about it, because I'm still here, and, and uh, because I think this is um, important. All right. Mark chapter 4 is the pair of the sower. Um, we spent a good amount of time on it last week, so I, I want to um, just um, do one verse here, and then uh, and then spend our time talking and thinking about it, and See where it goes. Starting in verse 13, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? I'm assuming you know the parable. If not, then we're in a little bit of trouble. But do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky grounds, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulation or persecution rises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The others are those sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the cares and the desire, sorry, for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And the um, and those that were sown on the ground on, on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Um, I want to focus today on the third um, on on the thorns, which is yay. The three different types of bad soil that Jesus talks about. Um, there's there's actually progression. There's not they're, they're not just like three randomly bad things. There's a progression. The first type um, is the type that was sown on the, along the path. 
uh, and the word and the bird immediately takes and he steals it away. There's n- there's never a yes. It, you know, it, it never actually goes into your heart. It's always a no. Do you know? Like there was never a point at which this was going to work. It was just it was never going to work. And um and and that that's uh very interesting. And um the the Jesus blames well bl- blames is not the right word, but but he gives um. Uh, he explains it by by saying that it's it's really the enemy that 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 has a place. The, 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 there is a problem with the quality of the soil as well, right? But but um, but a big part of the explanation is that this is that this is something that the enemy has done. This is it's not. In other words, it's not just the individual. Um, that, does that make any sense? Like it's not just the soil that that is the issue. Like the the enemy has done something, and so like when you're up against um, uh, uh, type one here. Um, which is, you know, the, the seed that never even, that just bounces off. You, you know about the seed that just bounces off, right? It's, it's whenever you try to evangelize. Um, <laughs> never mind. Uh, sorry, that was, that was not a, I'm sorry if that hurt. Um, the seed that bounces off, though, part of the explanation is that it, there's something that the enemy is actually doing. And so in order to, in order to, um, to, to have victory in that situation, in order to, to, um, to bear fruit in that situation, you have to, you have to, there's spiritual warfare involved because there's something that the enemy is, is doing. Does that make sense? All right. The, the second type, um, and so the, the first type is just, it never even went in. Like there was never, like it just, you know, it never went in. All right. The second type um, is to see that, that, um, that, that does go in, but only goes in very shallow because of the rocks and the soil. And there's a word in there that um, you, you may have noticed. Jesus says immediately, immediately it fails. In other words, the, the, the second type of, of soils where it, it does go in, but only for like, you know, the slightest moment, like, you know, a day, a week, you know, probably not a month even, maybe a month, or maybe recent. And, and these are, I, um, you may have some experience with this, you may not, this may be you, I don't know, um, where, you know, there are people that get really excited about something, you know, they get touched by God, something happens in their life, there's a catalyst of some sort, and it bears fruit, it seems like, things are working. It seems like, oh yeah, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. But, um, you know, within a day, a week, you know, you begin to realize that they reverted exactly to where they were before, you know, it's, um, and, uh, and, and so, um, and Jesus says, um, it's because of the testing that the seed go through, goes through, and that person, it's just, they can't, they're not, they, the, 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 the desire in them for that seed is not deep enough to survive the testing. And the testing here can be tribulation, can be persecution, but it could be all sorts of things. Um, you know, uh, it, it could be, you know, uh, somebody looking at you the wrong way. I mean, it could be all sorts of things. Um, and, and so the second seed immediately falls away. The fourth seed is the one that, you know, bears fruit. And in Luke chapter 8, where, um, where Luke talks about this, it says, bears good fruit with patience. In other words, the last seed is a seed that survives for the longest period of time. And then you have um, the third, which is the thorns, which is what I want to talk about today. The, th- in the, thor- the thorns is very interesting because the thorns represents, to, to me, um, uh, the, the way to think about why there are lots of people who, um, as far as you can tell, really, truly do love God and really have a receptive place in the heart. But nevertheless, over the course of a long time, um, nothing really happens in their life. N- nothing, int- like, nothing significant really happens in their life. There are a lot of people that in their um, teens and 20s show lots of eagerness, excitement. You call them on fire for God. The graveyard of revival is littered with people who are on fire for God in their 20s and 30s. There's, the, the, like, 
I'm sorry, but if people think you're on fire, that's not really worth anything. So <laughs> don't give yourself the sticker quite yet. Um, let's, let's wait a few decades and see. But the testing of the on-fire believer that doesn't end up being the believer that, that bears the 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold fruit is what Jesus calls thorns. And he explains the thorns. So this is not the, the person that, you know, it bounces off and never enters. This is also not the person that immediately falls away, you know. Something bad, the first bad thing that happens, you know, their parents said, you did what? And they're like, oh my God, I can't do that anymore. This is not that person. They, they, there is some ability to endure. And Jesus explains why this kind of person um, goes, um, if, uh, uh, you know, they, they kind of stick with it, but, but still there's no fruit in the long term. And Jesus says, these, they are these, verse 18, who hear the word, but there are three things that really choke it, right? The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and a desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Um, these three things are actually all different things, as you might imagine. And I want to, if it's possible, if, um, I guess it's possible since I have the mic. Um, I, I want to spend time in, in, and really go through each and every single one of them um, this morning and, um, and just think through these things. Because I, th- I, think, I think for most of us in this room, this is the test. In other words, I think that if in 10 or 15 years from now, you look back on your life and the last 10 or 15 years and God were not particularly fruitful and you're more or less the same place you were or like, you know, maybe some things happened but not really the things that you desired. I think you should look back at this first and realize that this is what happened to you. Is that significantly convicting? <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to be honest. Like we, we can't, don't, don't just let time go by. Like, like, you know, and not hold yourself to any account. There are seasons in your life where your walk with God um, uh, uh, matures and deepens significantly. And there are seasons in life where, let's be honest, it didn't. And you're more or less where you started you know, a significant period of time. And, and this, this is it. This is, this, is, this is us. This is like, he's speaking to us. He's speaking to the people that want to do well, but over a long period of time, they end up not doing well. It proves unfruitful. Do you know what? Every phrase is so interesting, right? It proves unfruitful means that in the beginning, if you were to look at it, you would not necessarily be able to tell that it was going to be unfruitful. But at the end of it, when you look back, it was unfruitful. And here's the explanation. The cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. All right, let's start with this, the cares of the world. There's um, a few verses in uh, 1 John chapter 2 that I think are really helpful here. I'm going to turn there and just read them to you, starting in verse 15. I apologize in advance for how direct this is. If you're easily offended, well, you know, it was in the Bible, so. <laughs> uh, uh, but I'll just apologize for how direct John is. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do you see, this is why I have to apologize for how direct this is. Because some people love basketball and some people love soccer and some people love gardening and some people love baking and some people love fashion and some people love what are the Bitcoin, and some people love, um, you know, 
coffee and some people love buying things and some people love golf. Like, you know, <laughs> but, but John says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you see them trying to apologize for being so direct? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John is talking about, um, I think this is what Jesus is, is talking about when he says the cares of the world. What, what John is talking about here is something that I'm going to go ahead and call idolatry light. L-I-T-E, not L-I-G-H-T. L-I-T-E, idolatry light. Idolatry light is a type of idolatry that Christianity not only permits, but promotes. Idolatry light is not the idolatry where you walk into a, 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 a temple and bow down to the idol, to, to, the, to the stones and to the wood. It's not the type of idolatry where you say, I'm a Christian and I'm a Hindu. It's not, it's, it's not that type of idolatry. In fact, you may still hate that type of idolatry. But there are still things in your life that you love, but that you're not supposed to. You know, like you're, you're very like you just it just you, you gotta have them, you know. But you're not supposed to, and it's it's difficult to to tackle these things because we have many justifications and many explanations for why these things exist. God wants me to have hobbies. God God loves that I enjoy these things. They're the cares of the world. John calls them three things. Desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Do you see, like, if you were to actually think about these things, what what John's talking about, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, like, a lot of times, actually, as Christians, do you know how, like, identity is such a big part of Christianity these days? And a lot of times, we, our identity is based on actually this stuff. When you come into a church or a group, like, who are you? Oh, I'm a foodie. I love food. That's desire of the flesh. Or I love fashion. And you're like, oh, that's a guy who loves fashion. We exalt these things, and we actually um, intentionally, this is very confusing to me. And sorry, it's not that confusing. I, it's, it's very confusing why we don't see it for what it is. Um, we, uh, we exalt these things. We tell, them, we tell people that this is who they are, that this is what makes them unique, that this is what allows them to add value. This is what makes them diverse. This is, this is, that, this is how, what, what, what they are as a person is, is all this stuff. That, that, that they're really idols. They're just not the type of idols that your Hindu friend has. And that's what Jesus is saying. I cares of the world. And the reason that cares of the world um, are um, dangerous is specifically because we don't identify them as idols, and so we don't try to get rid of them. We think that these are good things. 
We think that it's a good thing for us to be an expert on food and fashion and, and movies and, you know, and, and, and art and, and music and, and, and everything else. We consider these people sophisticated. We consider them cultured. We consider, we, we want to be like them, you know. We believe that if we were to become more like this, that we would have a deeper ability to penetrate into the world and be a part of the world and to influence the world that's around us. That we could be employable at tech companies and finance companies and go to great grad schools and, 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 and you know. And so we, we encourage this stuff. The development of expertise in coffees and beers and teas and also, you know, like we, we encourage it. But John says very simply, do not love the world or the things in the world. And so I half-jokingly um, mentioned Boba as a um, potential idol. And it's, it's only a joke until it's not a joke. You know? It's only a joke until you can't go to prayer meeting without one. And you'll be late to church to get one. And you'll be late to meet your friends because you can't walk by that favorite Boba place without... And it's not a prayer meeting unless somebody brings both for everybody. I do, no, it's, it's a joke until it's not a joke. Until it has such a grab of your heart that like, it's just like, oh my God, I can't wait for break at retreat so that I can go to title. Like, it, 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 at some point, it becomes very much not a joke. Because we have a love for it. And the only way to get rid of it is to recognize that we have a love for this stuff. I... Um, uh, recently, we um, uh, Eliza's applying for kindergartens, and 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 uh, because that's what you have to do in New York. You <laughs> I was tell talking to some of my friends from other parts of the country about having to apply for kindergarten. Um, and you could just enroll them in the local public school, but everybody here knows that it's a sophisticated education system. You want you want to get your kids in the best schools. You got to really think hard about. Oh, that's a whole process. They can't write essays yet, so the parents have to write essays. Um, <laughs> about how they're great their kid is, but then, you know, try to sound humble at the same time. It's a mess. So well, I was applying for kindergartens, and recently there was a, a disappointing experience, or there's, you know, some school we thought should get in, but disappointing experience. And it really, like, Esther and I were both, like, shook a little bit. And um, first we were just like, oh, what a great disappointment. Like, Eliza should have really gotten in. Like, she's qualified. She just, it was a, it was a kind of traumatic experience for her. Um, you know, they needed her to be alone to do a test. She didn't want to be alone, so they couldn't test her. But the whole thing. Anyways, different story, different time. But afterwards, we both were so shaken about it. I, I, I was like, wow, there's something, like, what is this? This is just like, oh, we just, we love our kids, you know. We, we, want, we love our kid. We want to get into the best school. But I had some prayer time that week. I had some prayer time that week. I mean, we, we were like both like quite shaken, honestly, especially Esther, because, you know, I mean, she spent her whole life raising Eliza, essentially. Not her life. She also evangelized and things. But, like, it, it's a lot for her. And so we both, I was praying, I had some prayer time that week, and I was just, and I, I was thinking about how moved I was by this event, which is, you know, it's not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, but, but so I'm moved by this event, and I was like, Lord, why? And just the sneaking little suspicion, oh my God, is that an idol? When something moves your heart, you really have to ask Why? When something is hard for you to give up, you have to ask why. Because it's this stuff. And it's the grace of God to expose these things in your life when they're baby thorns and they're not thorn bushes. 
because these things will choke the seed of God out of you. And they will do it in the short term or in the long term. And it's not any particular day that you die. But in the long term, what you find is that the things that God is doing in your life, they do not mature, they do not bear fruit. Because these things exist in you. And do you know what? None of them sound particularly evil. If I was to tell you that I was passionate about getting my kid into the best school that she could go to, nobody would be like, you sinner. And yet, if you were to be honest about it before God, you would recognize that there is such a love and such an attachment to this that it is taking away from the things that God desires for you. The deceitfulness of riches, I love the way that God talks about it, that Jesus talks about it, because it's not, as I said last week, it's not the same thing as the love of money, which is its own problem. But it's, it's not the same thing as the love of money. It's something else. It's being deceived by the value of money. And coincidentally, by the value of your stuff. The proverb of the day today Okay, nobody's looking forward to the proverb of the day except Kenesha. The proverb of the day today, I think, is Proverbs, if I remember it correctly, Proverbs 11, verse 28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. This deceitfulness of riches, um, the love of money is also bad. I, that's covered in cares of the world, <laughs> obviously. But the deceitfulness of riches is different. It's the desire to trust in something apart from God. The most powerful type of deception, in fact, Deception only has power if you trust in the thing that you're being deceived by. If you don't trust in it, it's just a lie. But it doesn't really make a big difference to you. If you ask somebody, what's the temperature outside today because you're going out, and um, they say 50, but it's really 30, and you didn't wear enough. I mean, <laughs> you step out, you realize it's too cold, you go back to your house, you're like, no, it's not. It's colder than that. I'm going to put on another jacket. Like, you were deceived in a sense. <laughs> but not in any sense that is interesting or important. Like, do you know? Like, it, it, you're, not, you're, you're not that deeply reliant on it. Just the deceitfulness of riches deals with people that are deeply reliant on the things that they're, the, the desire to trust and placing your trust in it. Do not be fooled. It's very easy to be deceived especially by things that you want deeply. There was, um, there's lots of deceptions. They're, they're generally called frauds. Um, but all deception, is, it's, it's, it's very interesting because it's not stupid people that are deceived, typically. It's not unsophisticated people that are deceived. It's people that think that they are sophisticated. About... 15 years ago at this point, there was a gigantic scam in our industry in finance, a guy named Bernie Madoff. Have you heard the name before? Bernie Madoff was a, was a, is a gigantic 
scammer and a fraudster. He raised a, he eventually ended up with a, with a fund of $50 billion, which made no investments. It was all, it was all a scam. He took the money and he, you know, essentially bought houses for himself and spent it and did different things. And then the rest of it, he just put in a, you know, it was just there. And, and, uh, and, and nobody ever caught him, by the way. Nobody ever caught him. He turned himself in during the great financial crisis in 2008 because people were trying to withdraw money and he didn't really have it and he didn't want to deal with it anymore. And he'd been perpetuating the scam for 25 years. And nobody ever caught him. Not the SEC, not the police, not the FBI, not any of his, not any of his investors. We're all sophisticated people. We're all sophisticated people. Uh, the list of his investors range from you know, very well-known celebrities to billionaires to hedge fund managers. The, the guys at Renaissance Technologies, which is the most um, successful hedge fund of, of all time, had $30 million in his fund. And not a single one of them realized that it was a total fraud. This is not like a half fraud. This is not like a half lie. It was a total and complete fraud. Nobody ever caught him. He turned himself in. Because he got tired of perpetuating the fraud. There are the most dangerous type of people in terms of like this. The, the greatest danger you're in is when you believe that you can't be deceived. You can't be fooled. They always know what's right. There's um, a story that um, is in one of uh, Malcolm um, Gladwell's books, which I don't know if you read. I certainly don't. Um, is one of Malcolm Gladwell's books. In the, uh, in the 80s, there was a, this very famous CIA operative. His name was the Mountain Climber. Or his code name, obviously, is not his real name. His code name was the Mountain, was the mountain Climber. And the uh, and Mountain Climber um, started his career in the Soviet Union in the old days, and he was so good at his job. He was just so unbelievably good at his job. The Soviets realized that they were just being absolutely plundered, like just, just being plundered by this guy. And so one day he, he's, he's at a cafe near the end of his time in, the, uh, you know, in, in Moscow, and two KGB agents sit down across from him, and they, they say, we know exactly who you are, and we know what you've done. Listen, we're not going to do anything to you. They pull out two gigantic bags full of money. They open them in front of them. They said, all this is yours. Please come work for us. We're not even upset with you. We've just been so thoroughly beaten by you. What we want is for you to come and work for us. And he, of course, is part of that generation of totally honorable, completely incorruptible government bureaucrats who immediately said, no, we never do such a thing. And um, anyways, and then after he was, he was recalled to Langley, and then the next posting he had was um, the, the head of the, the um, CIA bureau in Havana in Cuba. And uh, that may sound like a weird promotion, <laughs> except that in the 80s, most of uh, American, um, anti-American sentiment, anti-American government um, uh, uh, spying efforts and things like that ran through Cuba. And so Havana was, it was the major posting in the Americas. And so he ran the bureau there for a lot, uh, many years, and then afterwards he, um, he uh, came back to the States and, and uh, worked as an executive at the CIA and at the headquarters. Anyways, a number of years later in the early, in the mid-90s, I think, this was before the um, early 90s, before the fall of Berlin Wall, um, one of the best um, spies for Cuba uh, at that time was in Eastern Europe, and he decided that he wanted to defect to the West. And so he made his way to the CIA station in Frankfurt, and at the CIA station in Frankfurt, he, um, he turned himself in, he identified who he was, and, uh, and, and, and uh, they, they brought him in, and, and he said, um, I'm going to defect, but I, the only person I'm willing to talk to is the mountain climber. And so 
the mountain climber gets an urgent call in the CIA headquarters. The head of the CIA says, you need to go to Frankfurt right now. There's a def serious defector. He can give us everything on Castro. Give us everything. You have to go now. And as he gets on a plane, he goes to Frankfurt. He sits down in the room with a guy, and he says, which is the first thing that all spies, people who are in the business of deceiving other people, say in this situation is like, you need to prove who you are, right? I need some bona fides. You need to prove who you are. Tell me something that only, that only you would know if, if you were who are you, you said you were. Because they'd never heard of this guy before, which is what makes you a good spy, by the way. And he said, um, okay, you used to be a station chief in Havana. He said, that's right. Um, and he said, when you were a station chief in Havana, you had a, you had a, a source. His name was, make up a name, Juan. And uh, <laughs> a, pro, a culturally appropriate name. Okay. <laughs> Name was Juan, and uh, and and Juan um, uh, and 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 Juan was a source tree for you know eight years. And he said, "That's right. How do you know that?" And he said, "Juan used to go into into Castro's office, and he would take photos of 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 these things for you, and gave us examples of the photos that he would take." And he said, "That's right." He said, "How do you know that?" And he said, "Oh, Juan was working for us. He was never your source. He was always our source. He was always working for us. He was just feeding you whatever we told him to feed you. He said, what? This is one of the greatest careers in, this, in the history of the CIA. And he's imagining himself. He's like, oh my God, he's totally devastated. He's like, I can't believe I missed that. A double agent, I mean, is, I, I, you know, incalculable what kind of harm it could do, they could do to you. And uh, he sat there. He's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I can't believe I've missed something like that. He said, you had another source. His name was Pedro. And he was high up in the, in, the, in the Cuban Air Force. He said, that's right. How, 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 how do you know that? And he said, Pedro used to give you these schematics of these missiles that we were yeah, researching and uh, places where we wanted to put these things. And, uh, and everything. he said, that's right. And he's dropping information for you in this way. And I'll be like, yeah, that's how do, but he said, how do you know that? Like, oh, Pedro's our source. He's just feeding you whatever one told you. And he's, now he's thinking that two bad sources. I mean, that's like pretty, that's, that's bad. Like that's, that's, like, that's bad. And he's, I mean, this is a story career, you know. He's on the walls at Langley. Like he's, you know, he's got a star in his name. That's bad. And then, and he said, um, and then you had another source. It's Julio. <laughs> High up in the, uh, you know, in, in, Cu in Cuban intelligence. And he used to give you, you know, locations of field offices and safe houses and identities of, of agents that we planted in, you know, different places. And he said, you know, that, 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 that's also right. How, how do you know that? Wait, let me guess. He said, that's right. It's a double agent. I went down the list and named 28 double agents. Every significant source of the CIA office in Havana, every single one of them was a double agent. Guy broke down and he was like, oh my God, this is, this is, this is ridiculous. So... Obviously, that guy, the, the Cuban informant, got a ride back to Langley. He, he made it to city headquarters, and he sat down and debriefed. All the intelligence of the Havana office shipping back to Langley had been reviewed by the best analysts there are in counterintelligence. These people expect to be deceived. They expect people to try to deceive them. That is the entire business of spycraft, is to deceive. He said, how, do, how on earth do we miss this? Because they thought that they were doing... Well, thought that they were doing right. The deceitfulness of riches is the sort of thing that 
that is most likely to hit people that don't believe that they can be hit by it. It's not that other people can't have it, but when other people have it, it's called the love of money. The deceit comes in when you don't believe that you can. And, and, and that's what makes it sneaky, and that, that's why you have to constantly be checking your heart before God all the time. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about there's two things I think that are most deceiving for Christians when it comes to um, the purity of their heart before God. The first one, I, I, I think, is what he's talking about here, money. In Matthew chapter something, six, I'm pretty sure, verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The deceitfulness of riches typically is that you can have it and have God. That you can have riches, I think, if you were to be a little bit more broad about it, applies not just to little United States dollars sitting in your bank account, but to the things of the world, success and career and hobbies. And, and, and the, it's the, the idea is that you are able to give your life to this, but also able on the side on Sundays and sometimes Wednesdays, give yourself to God as well. That's the deception. And you cannot serve two masters. There's essentially two things that I can find in the Gospels that Jesus says it's, it's one or the other and you can't do both. And the first is the things of the world, this thing that we'll broadly call money. And the second thing is maybe something that you would not expect. In Mark chapter 7, he's talking to them about the nature of hypocrisy. And he says this, and I love this very much, so let me... Read this, starting in verse 6, he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. I'm sorry, this is not that uplifting. The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines and commandments of men. And then verse 8. And verse 8 is one of the most devastating verses, and it's one of the most, um, if you understand this, and if you uh, um, take it to heart, and and really learn to humble yourself and to work through this and, and ensure that this and the love of money never have a grab of you, I can almost guarantee that you will live out this life and look back and be like, oh my God, what a wonderful, extraordinary, unbelievable, exciting life that I had in God. There are two things like for, for you. Now, for other people, there may be more. Maybe they you know, are Hindu and they need to turn from, okay. But, but I'm talking about like for, for, for the people that have survived, you know, the, the, the path and, 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 and the, the, the first two types of, of soil. And he says, you leave the command of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. The second thing that is in great conflict with good soil and with the nurturing of the things of God is religion, is man-made religion. 
there are very few Christians that when they think about who's religious, they think of themselves. Religion is simply this, that you care about what people think more than you care about what God thinks. It's actually very simple. What is not said in this verse, but which is probably important for you to know, is that the concept of Corbin is not something that people made up. It's a concept that's established in the Bible, in Numbers, I think it's chapter 20, uh, no, 30, verse 1 and 2. The concept of Corbin is established by Bible verses. It's not something that just randomly dreamed up. But what people did is they took those verses and they put them in conflict with other verses. And they said, these verses are more important. That is our custom, that is our tradition, that is the way that we do things, yada, yada, yada. And that's... This type of religion is extremely, extremely, extremely dangerous. Because you don't think that you're worshiping an idol. You think that you're going down the right path. You think that like, this is, we are a Bible-believing, Bible-based church. And everything has a scriptural reference next to it. Years ago when we were writing the, um, our statement of faith, I noticed that most churches, when you go to read their statement of faith or their values, like they tell you what they believe and then they have like four or five Bible verses after every single one of them. And I said, that's a very interesting practice. Why do I need to have citations for, it, it, it harkens back to, you know, when you're in elementary school and they talked about like arguments and what brings arguments credibility. And one of, one of, the, one of the, the ways that you can make an argument make it credible is by pleading authority, right? You don't just say, I think blah, blah, blah. You said, well, I read an article in the New York Times. Okay, this doesn't sound familiar to anybody. All right, great. Remember fifth grade? Like, this is, yeah, I, I read an article in the New York Times. I mean, you could say my mom told me, but then people are like, what does your mom know? And so instead you say, well, I read an article in the New York Times. And, or, or, you know, I saw, I saw it in the encyclopedia. The encyclopedia says, and, and, and you plead authority. There are a lot of Christians that anytime they want to say something, they plead authority. They have a Bible verse. And that's exactly, precisely the foundation upon which religion is built. If something is true, if there's something that we believe in, it's true, it's, it's in the Bible. But there's something slightly twisted about me trying to force you to believe what I believe by telling you you're not allowed to believe anything else because of certain verses that I have. Does that make any sense or no? Um, I, years ago, I, I had friends that, that they, were, um, they were working with this church in Florida. Um, it was a very large church, and this large church was, was, was a good church. There's nothing wrong with it, but eventually they, they came into tension with the leaders of that church. And, um, and so they ha um, had to leave. The friends that I had were working with a missions organization and they were part of their staff and part of their, um, their leadership team. And then the pastors of that church were also um, connected to that mission organization. Because of the tension, because my friends left, that church, they didn't want to lose their relationship with that missions network. And so they decided to put out, the senior pastor decided to write a letter 
to the organization about why there was tension and why there was conflict and, and why these people left. And it was a letter filled with Bible verses. Everything had a verse. Every argument, there's like something right next to it. You know, it says and blah, 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 and all the others. And, and, and I remember talking to my friends about it. And it was the most contrived, unchristian thing. And yet it was chock full of Bible verses, full of accusations, half-truths, misrepresentations, one-sided misinterpretations, there were some offenses, some bitterness, some wrongdoing on both sides, but, but, but the, the letter and, and the way that it was presented filled with verses. There's a fairly well-known story in the history of Chinese missions, which I, I don't know if, um, I'll just go ahead and tell you. There's a, a young, um, you guys know who Hudson Taylor is? He's one of the breakthrough missionaries. And, and Hudson Taylor was, um, founded the China Inland Mission, but Hudson Taylor was actually a fairly religious man. He had very, and he's a hero of the faith, and I, there's many ways in, for which I applaud him, but he was not a particularly flexible man. He was very set in his ways, and he really genuinely believed that his ways were right. Um, fairly early in the China Inland Mission, there was a young man, his name I think was George Parker, and he went to China. And uh, China Inland Mission at that time had a, uh, uh, one of their ministries was a school. Um, where they were bringing in uh, 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 just local kids and they were educating them and, and, uh, and, um, and, and, uh, and that was part of their ministry. And it was a wonderful work, by the way, and very difficult. Like they, uh, I mean, the, those missionaries are devoted. They learned the Chinese language, as you know, is different from English. Um, you know, lots of years adopted the customs, eventually built up the school. Lots of time, lots of effort had been devoted um, to this ministry. Eventually raised up a school and it was a large school. It was a well-known school in that city and it was very well received and it gave them inroads into the community because of this school. There was a young man that came from England to join um, the missions effort there, and he was probably in his mid-20s. And um, he got there, and a few years later, he fell in love with one of the young women who was affiliated with the school, um, but she was a local. And um, they wanted to get married. He wanted to marry her. But the, the missionaries there were, were very um, firmly against it. There was a rule uh, in, uh, in CIM that you were not allowed to marry one of the locals. And the reason was because the missionaries were concerned that um, if the foreign men came in to marry the, the local women, um, that, uh, that they would be accused of you know, trying, trying to pillage the local ladies. And, and, and then, you know, the fathers would pull all their daughters out of school and it'd be like this big uproar and they wouldn't have any inroads in the community anymore. They were so deeply convinced of this. That, that half of the CIM missionaries um, threatened to resign. And they wrote a, a letter to Hudson Taylor and went back to England. And they said, you know, and, you know if this marriage goes through, uh, that you know, we can't work with China Inland Mission anymore because we believe that this you know, greatly threatens our ability to do this work here. Um, they were just scared that, that, that allowing the marriage to go through, that, that it would just be this negative testimony in the community. And then the people, the local people, were divided into two camps. Some of them agreed with what the missionaries were saying. They were like, oh, you can't possibly allow this. This is, you know, what are you guys doing and all this stuff. And then other people were like, some of the staff, the, the, the people that have been converted and joined the school, well, said, well, you know, isn't this kind of racist? You know, that you would, you would have any problem with, you know, two white 
um, uh, you know, if he wanted to marry one of the white girls that was part of this, this missions group, but because she's, she's local, you don't want her to get married. And, and Hudson Taylor firmly came down on the side of, of his missionaries. He wanted to keep his missions organization together, wanted to make sure that he didn't fail, um, or that he didn't cause a, a church split, which he would have if he allowed um, the thing to go through. And so he wrote a very firm letter and he told the young man, this thing is of the devil and you're not allowed to do it. I make sure that you can't do it and everything, blah, 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 whole thing. It was a big controversy. Eventually, the, the, the young girl's father resolved it and, and um, allowed them to get married and you know, required him to pay this very significant bride price, um, but said that you know, if you'll do this, then you know, I'll give you my daughter and you can get married. And they did. And he and his wife ministered in China for over 45 years, and they were one of the most important missionary, early missionary couples in China. Unexpectedly, what the other missionaries did not understand, which maybe you understand it now because it's a lot more common now. It wasn't, it wasn't common back then. They never seen or experienced it. But what happened was that, that um, because she was a local, anywhere that he wanted to go, he would want to go into a new village, for instance, she would go with him. And because she was a local and she knew the language and she knew, I mean, you know, just like, you know, I mean, it was her, that was her people, that she could go anywhere in China. She wasn't confined to like where the government said you could go or, you know, where the tribal chief was friendly or anything like that. She'd go anywhere. And she'd go into a new village and, and people come out and see them and welcome them to town. They'd never seen um, a, a cross-racial marriage of that sort before. And rather than having riots and people be like, she would go into a new town and, and uh, people would like, um, they would welcome them. They would set up a small business and start a school and people would come and she would speak the local language to them. And, um, and, and it, 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 it opened up the gospel to, to lots of places and they eventually made it as far um, as far west as Tibet. Sometimes they would even take other uh, workers with them. They would take you know, other people with them. And, it, and, and nobody expected, and they ended up becoming one of the most influential and successful early missions efforts, period, the end. And completely unexpected and completely opposed, by the way, by one of the finest missions organizations on the planet at that time and even now. The, you know, the great legacy uh, China and the mission has. The point is that it is very easy and very common for us to conflate the commandments of men and the will of God. And it's very difficult actually to, to foster a spirituality in yourself where the culture that you have personally, the values that you have, the things that you believe are important because people told you that those things are important, that they do not get in the way of the thing that you have with God. My desire, my, my personally, my desire, and this is not you know, to, just because we're on this topic, my desire is that you would never believe something just because Daniel told you. You gotta make it your own. I've told you how, like, a long time ago, I was, um, when I was at Iris, there was, a, there was a, 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 a team that came from one of the big churches in the States there was, it, was, uh, it was their school, you know, part of the young people, and they sent a team over, um, and, and uh, they, they asked people on this team to share. And the people got up, and they would share, and they would share almost word-for-word word sermons that they heard back home. And it wasn't that the, those sermons were bad. They weren't bad. I listened to them. I, they're influential. It was just that it was very clear <laughs> they were, that they were reciting, to the best of their ability, something that they had heard that somebody else had preached. And that's not that valuable. 
What's really valuable is when you hear something and you believe it to be right, that you internalize it and you make sure that this is not just something that somebody wants you to do because they're the le a leader at your church or because you respect them or you honor them or you think that they're a good person. Bad people do not set up religious practices that other people follow. Only good people do. It's the people that you respect. It's the people that you honor. It's the people that you think, oh no, they really are for God. They're able to do this to you. But it's very easy to set the commandments and the expectations of others higher than the things of God. And that will compete with and choke the things that God wants to do in your life. And lastly, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. In the very early church, there are people that they are aesthetics, aesthetics. They, 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 they believe that you should desire nothing and have nothing. You should live in a desert, in a monastery, and there should be no fleshliness at all. Some of you are familiar with some of these people. Um, the Desert Fathers or some of them and, and others. And th they really believe that, like, you know, you just have nothing. You know, good food, very uncomfortable bed. Like, in fact, you know, the, the less you have, the better. And we more or less rejected it because we see the monastic lifestyle and we're like, yeah, it doesn't necessarily produce the greatest Christians. And so we don't like that anymore. But it's one thing to reject the blessings of God that God wants to give you that would enrich your life and to say that rejecting those things is not helpful to you. I agree. It's a totally different thing to be so immersed in the world that you desire those things and you acquire them in your life. I think that the, difficult, the, the reason the, the desert father lifestyle doesn't work that well is because there are certain things that God brings into your life that are, that are blessings and, and they are intended to serve a certain purpose to enrich your life, to make it more fulfilling, to, to make it more wholesome, all, all sorts of different things. But that's very different from having desires of the world that, that come in and they choke the thing that God is doing in you. And that line between the blessings that God is bringing to you and the desires of your own desires that you're bringing into yourself, this is a difficult line, right? Let's see, say that you see a piece of chocolate laying on the table and you happen to enjoy chocolate. How do you know if the Lord has blessed you with this chocolate <laughs> or if it's going to choke what God did at church today because you ate it? I mean, how do you know? It's like a fairly difficult thing to, to, to discern and to, and to realize, right? Jeremiah 29 is one of the people's favorite verses. Well, one of the verses is one of people's favorite verses. The rest of the chapter, eh, we don't like it that much. We just like that one verse, you know, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and hope. That's the one we like. We like the one where God says, I just got everything figured out for you. Don't worry, lean on me. This is, this is going to be awesome. And we recite that verse everywhere all the time. The rest of the chapter, don't like it as much. But the rest of the chapter is awesome. Early in the chapter it says, do not let your prophets or your diviners deceive you. <laughs> you see, the rest of the chapter is awesome. But chapter um, 13, 
I'm sorry, verse 13 is, is my favorite verse in this chapter. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You want to find God, seek him with all of your heart. Not with 17% of it, not with 20% of it, not with 25%, not with 92%, all of your heart. That's the only way to find God. There's no other way. There's no other way. So are your hobbies evil? They're not evil. Are the things that you enjoy evil? No, they're not evil. Is the fact that you want to be married evil? That's not evil. Is the fact that you want kids evil? It's not evil. It's the fact that you want to spend time with your kids evil. It's not evil. It's the fact that you want to go on vacation evil. It's not evil, but it does choke the work that God is doing in you. And you have to choose. How much choking will you permit? It's very difficult to rid people of this because as soon as you go in this direction, people are like, legalism! What do you mean people can't eat chocolate? Of course they can eat chocolate. It's not, desire is not for legalism. Desire is for you to understand you have a choice. If you want a lot of the work of God in your life to be choked, entertain a lot of desires. Some people are like, how much TV can I watch? How much choking do you want? How much do you want to be choked? How much do you want the will of God in your life to be confined? Do you see, there's not like a right answer to that question, right? It's not, there's no law that says you can't watch a whole football game or three on your Saturday off or on Boxing Day. Is that what they call that day? Boxing Day, where all the football happens. I had a pastor once growing up and he would confess this in church like it was a good thing. He loved football so much, he watched football for 10 hours every Saturday. Like just from morning, Dusty he's like, he used to play football in college. He loved football his whole life. There was nothing to do on Saturday because he would preach on Sunday. And on Sunday, he'd bring, bring the message. And he was ready to bring the message because we were hard Monday through Friday. So on Saturday, 10 hours of football, just about every Saturday, as long as football season was on. Is it wrong? See, the problem is that there's no Bible verse for you to point to, to say that this is wrong. But the reality is that it does choke the work that God is doing in your life. And so it's your choice. There's a scale. You want to be choked a little? You want to be choked a lot? You want to be choked, like, you know? And we don't think of it that way. We think we're just indulging. We're just resting. Doing something that we enjoy for a change. But, but that's the, that, do, do you understand? The safest place to be in life and I understand that this is not feasible for, for a lot of people. But the safest place to be in life is to do nothing for yourself and to ask for nothing for yourself, but only to receive when people give it to you. Because when people give it to you, that's a blessing God has brought to you. You're not bringing anything in. You don't, think about why I said that. Right. What, what does Jesus say here? The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfaithful. Don't bring anything in. Do you know? Be like, God, if you want me to own a house, make someone give one to me. Try that. Nice? You like that? Oh, I got your AirPods upstairs. 
Bethel wanted AirPods. He didn't want to buy them. So he waited for someone to give him some. You see? That's how you make sure they don't choke you. So the rest of you went online. Follow the sales, you know? The way that you have a very rich life in God and enjoy the things of the world is that God adds the things that you desire to you. You don't seek them out. And if you're willing to live this way, if you're willing to be single-hearted in your devotion in this way, then everything that God is doing in you will bear fruit. And, to, and it's a spectrum, so you can choose. And you can choose how much you want to fill your life with the things of the world. Have to have a certain sweater, have to have a certain car, have to have a certain coat, have to go vacation in a certain place. You get to choose how much you want to fill your life with that. And the more you fill your life with it, the less the things that God wants to do in you will actually bear fruit. That's how you can get touched and untouched. Because you allow other things to compete. There are so many good excuses and explanations we have for why we do not move forward in God because I need to make this person happy, because that person told me their opinion, because I'm supposed to honor my parents, because I need to make some money, because I want to save some, because I don't want to, but, but it all boils down to this. We allow things to come in and to rob from the things that God would like to do in us. You can't do that. One of the most pioneering missionaries in the history of Tibet was a guy named Richard Plymer. He ministered in the early 20th century there, and he had such a hard, difficult time. I admire people that go through a difficult time because when you see that someone has given up everything, you know there's no thorns in their life. And, and the beauty of that is, that is that you get to see what happens to people's lives when there's nothing that's trying to keep, suppress the, thing that, the things that God wants to do in them. Richard Palmer was in the field for about 10 years before he got married. He went there as a single man in his mid-20s, and he wanted to get married for a long time, never found a wife. Then in his 30s, he finally found a young lady who was also a missionary in Tibet. They got married after a five-year engagement, just because of various circumstances they were in, because of the ministry they had to do. That's a long time to wait after you've already been waiting for a long time. And then after a while, God gave them a child, a son. When the son was five years old, I think this was in 1927, if I remember correctly, when the son was five years old, a plague of smallpox spread through their village. And in one week, his son and his wife both died. Victor had been planning to do an evangelistic journey through Tibet. I don't know if you know anything about Tibet. Those of you that know me know that I'm obsessed with Tibet. <laughs> Evangelizing Tibet. One day when God gives us a lot of money, guess where we're going? Um, I'm just kidding. We'll still be here. But we'll, guess where we'll be sending other people to go? <laughs> um, uh, anyways. He was planning an evangelistic journey through Tibet. And they'd been saving up for a long time because there's no way to raise money in the middle of that vast plain. There's no way. And so you had to gather enough stuff in advance. And so it took him a long time to raise the funds and to save up in order to do it. His wife were planning to do it. And then she and the son died suddenly. A few months after they died, Victor was at a crossroads. He was wondering if he should keep going or if he should 
go home. There's more to that story of the wife and the son, which God redeems later, but I won't tell you that today. And he decided to go on. And so in May of that year, he began a journey from the eastern part of Tibet through Tibet. And, and, and he was the first missionary ever in history to attempt this, to penetrate the heartland of Tibet and to bring the gospel through the heartland of Tibet into, into Lhasa and then you know, out the other side. No one had ever attempted to do it before because it was an impossible journey. There are no Marriotts along the way. And so he set off in the May of, I think it was 1927, with 50 yaks. Yeah. And with a, with a team of locals that, that were with him, some that he had hired and some that were believers and to go with him. And it was a terribly difficult journey. Horrendously difficult. Some of the things that he experienced he wouldn't write about, couldn't write about, because it would expose um, the route that he took and um, the people that were helping him and would subject them to danger. But, but missionaries around, um, early around the same time, talked about the difficulties of being in central Tibet and making a journey of that sort. Nobody ever attempted it. Some people that went in and they would, they would tell you, like, it was, it was high in the, in, the, in the Himalayas and it was freezing, freezing, freezing cold. There's no tents that could, like, it just didn't exist. Your tents would blow away. Um, and so every night for weeks, you would just be, you know, laying on the snow um, with you know little blankets like in the middle of and you there's no, you can't start fires the winds are too strong for you to start a real campfire and so and there's no there's there's nothing for you to burn there's no trees there's no wood and and so you're eating you know uh, a cold food and you're sleeping on the ground with snow falling all around you with nothing other than and you're doing that for weeks on end there's no running water there's no clean water and, and Victor talked about how he would, one time they didn't have water for just any water at all for a long time. And, and, and he was riding on his horse and he was going a little bit ahead of the company. He saw this, this pool of water and, and then he got there and, and there was like scum on the surface and the mosquitoes were like, you know, a bunch of mosquitoes. And then he was so thirsty, he jumped off his horse and he plunged his head straight and he drank as much of it as he could. Nine months took him to make this journey. In central Tibet, one of the stories that he does tell, in central Tibet, there was a, 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 a Buddhist, uh, there was a leader of a Buddhist area that was vehemently against outsiders coming and he had decided to kill Victor and his company when they came into his town. But the Dalai Lama, who was head of Tibet and he was a more diplomatic figure, <laughs> well, liked Westerners and, 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 and wanted Tibet to be open to trade for the prosperity of, of, of the area. And uh, I'm not going to be able to tell the story at all, so I'm just going to like rush through it. And so... The, the, the governor of the area decided he wasn't going to tell the Dalai Lama that these guys were coming because he wanted to just kill them and, and, and make sure they never got anywhere. Um, but a, a trader in the area found out that Victor and his company were coming through. And so he ran to the Dalai Lama and told him what was coming. The Dalai Lama said, send word to that governor and tell him that if he kills these people, I'm going to kill him. And so the, the messenger from the Dalai Lama and, and Victor and his company got to the town. So Victor and his company got to the town first. And so they were arrested and um, they were sentenced to death. And the governor came in and, 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 and you know, said, we're going to kill you. And they are on the, the block, ready to, get, ready to be executed. The executioner is there. The public is gathered. The mob is there. And in that moment, God wakes up an intercessor in Washington State who had heard Victor preach 20 years ago. And uh, she wakes up in the middle of the night. It's morning in Tibet. It's dead middle of the night. This old 70-some-odd-year-old intercessor wakes up in the dead middle of the night, and she has an open vision. Poof! And she sees the whole thing. She sees the mountain. She sees the villages. She sees the governor. She sees Victor and his Tibetan friends. And she sees like they're about to get their heads chopped off. And God said, pray for them now. 
And she jumps out of bed. She recognizes that this is the guy that she heard share at her home church, you know, many years ago. And and then after a while, uh, uh, she feels peace. You know, her prayer had been answered. And um, and 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 she so so what she, she stops praying and she gets out um, a, a, a notebook and she sketches the scene that she saw. And she sends it in a letter to Victor, to, um, uh, to Tibet, hoping that it would reach Victor. He got the letter about a year later, and it was, the ex- it was exactly what, what he went through. She, she saw exactly who was where, what they were wearing, the town, the village, like everything. It was a perfect depiction of what he was going through. What happened in Tibet was that they were about to be ready to execute, and the messenger of the Dalai Lama comes and, and he, he reaches the governor in that precise moment. And the messenger comes with a letter, he hands it up to that guy, and, 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 and he opens it and he reads it. Now he has to choose. Do I kill these people, but then get killed myself? Or do I embarrass myself and let these people go? And he, he went back into his tent and he thought 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 and he, thought and he said, I'll be embarrassed. <laughs> and so he let the people go. Literally the messenger arrived in that moment when they were about to be killed. Anyway, it's a nine-month journey through the thing, and, and, and he brought 74,000 tracks to hand out. And he gets to India with all the tracks gone. And through, he goes through villages and tribes and camps and, and all sorts of different, I mean, you could, he, he, took, he had a camera, um, and he took photos where we went, and you can see them, they're in the Billy Graham Evangelistic Museum Center thing, and I think it's Pennsylvania. Oh, no, it's at Wheaton College. And uh, there's some records of, of, of some of his photos. He took photos of, of this stuff and eventually makes it back to the States. Um, and, and this absolutely incredible journey where, you know, they're eating flowers, you know, sometimes. And, and when they get to a place and they can do it, you know, they, 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 you know, will kill one of their own yaks, you know, for food. And, you know, it feeds them for a long time. It keeps them warm because, you know, the meat is warm and, you know, all that stuff. My God, it takes a I, I can't Im- Like, there are people that do this sort of thing for God, you know. And when you get to a place like that in your life, you know there are no thorns, no, no thorns here, no, no, no deceitfulness of riches, no cares of the world. Like it's just, it, I'm just, it's it just, when you will find me, when you seek me with all of your heart. Like do you, you don't understand what God means, right? He means that like you can't, you want to find him, give him everything. Give up your hobbies your attractions, the things that you like to do, the things that you enjoy. And seek him with all of your heart and watch what he will do in your life. Just endless stories of this sort. I have so many stories from China, you wouldn't believe one more and then we'll call it a day. Actually, I don't want to call it a day yet. I want to read another verse to you and call it a day. There was a young lady, um, uh, Sister Lee, same last name as me, very proud. She was one of the early evangelists in Hunan province. She was like very, just wonderful, very well known. One day she was holding a, a, she planted a church in this, in, this, in this city. And hundreds of people came to come and hear the gospel. And the, the, the main local sorceress came uh, to, 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 to curse the people. And so she gets there and, and, and the sorceress like, is like, you all people, are you, you think that that's God, you're worshiping God. She calls out one of the people, she curses him. And the, there's a lady, she dies on the spot. Just like, stands up, Totally held it and just left, boom. And she just dies on the spot, just like that. And she's like, you think your God is big? See, that's, that's what happens when you worship this Christian God. And so Sister Lee, she's, well, she's stuck there. 
because she's trying to have this evangelistic meeting, and everybody's just scared. I, they are just scared witless. I, they are scared, scared. I mean, just imagine how scared you would be if somebody walked into this room and somebody I mean, they are scared. And so she's evangelist, I don't, I don't know, we're going to lose the whole church. And so she says, okay, we're stop the, the meeting. Everybody that wants to pray, pray. And so they prayed for a woman, and after two hours, the woman got up off the floor. And the sorceress was still there, and she was like, oh, no. <laughs> and so all the visitors that day decided to become Christians. <laughs> and the sorceress, who was a very powerful in the spirit person, also came forward and said, I want to give my life to Jesus. She said, let me tell you why. A while ago, she said, my daughter got very ill. And she said, I have a lot of spiritual power, as you can see. And I tried everything that I could to heal my daughter. And there was nothing that I could do. None of the spirits that I worship, none of the spirits that I work with could take away the sickness from my daughter. And I tried everything. I said, my daughter is going to die. He said, but your God gives life. And then, so then she got saved. And a few years later, there were 10 churches in that village. Dennis Balcom visited that village in 1994. I think they started in 1989 with about 20 people. In 1994, 300,000 believers in that city. John MacArthur famously wrote a book, Strange Fire, which he says, you know, all miracles are gone, miracles are fake, don't have any more, don't believe them. Dennis Balcom has a famous, he says, you can go to China. China has somewhere between 75 and 125 million believers today. He says, if you go to China and you survey the believers, Pretty much, because there's no crusades allowed in China, because you can't have church buildings in China, freedom, there's no freedom of religion. It's, it's a facade. It doesn't exist. And he says, if you go there and you're saved believers, uh, he's talking about in the mid-90s when he first started going there, he's, uh, he said, just about every single person has come to the faith because of a miracle. And he says, you can have all the arguments you want, all the Bible verses, you can pull out all your strange Greek, Hebrew, blah, blah, blah. it doesn't matter. Like, like you're going to believe that? Or are you going to believe 75 million people have all seen miracles. Hello. Do you know? That, every time I, the reason I expose myself to this stuff is because I know if it can be done in Tibet, it can be done at Yale or Harvard or Princeton or wherever. You're not harder to reach than Tibet is. You know what Tibet is like? In my city, students are so hard to reach. Do you have any idea what Lhasa is like? Oh, the spiritual atmosphere on my campus, you have no idea. Yes, I do. Do you know what you If it can be done there, it could be done here. Seek me, you'll find me. When? You seek me with all your heart. When you get rid of the thorns, the fruit will grow. You want to explode in God. You want your gifts in God, your relationship with God, your faith in God to explode. Get rid of the thorns. Get rid of the things that seem nice, that seem good, that don't, there's no, there's no moral argument for why you can't watch a TV show or enjoy a round of golf or a gardening class. But understand, the more stuff you plant in the garden, the less the seed of God will grow. I think that most times, people who are Christians 
entertain thorns in their life because they are not content with God's love. They don't really believe in it. You don't really believe in it. It's difficult to sell something you don't really believe in. It's difficult to get rid of your money when you don't believe that God actually will take care of you. It's very difficult to not care about anything else in the world, to give up all your love for sports and ballet and art, music, Bitcoin. You don't believe in God's love. But there's a verse I want to read to you. In Psalm 139, verse 17 and 18, which I rediscovered this weekend, which is meditating on because it's awesome. And the psalmist says, How precious are your th- to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sands. I awake and I am still with you. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. And he's talking about God's relationship with himself. They are more than the sand. That's God's thoughts towards you are more than the grains of sand. Scientists estimate, I only know this because this is an interesting fact in relation to this verse. Scientists estimate that there are 7.5 quintillion grains of sand on just the beaches of the earth. Not deserts, not in the ocean, not anywhere else, just on the beaches. 7.5 quintillion grains of sand just on the earth. Forget about Mars. Do you know if you wanted to love God as much as God loved you and you had one positive thought about God every second, how long it would take you to have 7.5 quintillion thoughts about God. Every second, like one thought per second, just like clockwork, just like, do you know how long it would take you to get to 7.5 quintillion thoughts about God? I'll tell you, 283 billion years. God's thoughts towards you, more vast, the grains of sand on the earth. Sometimes we don't trust that he loves us. We think that maybe he forgot about us, didn't see us, didn't recognize we needed something, didn't care. Maybe he might leave us out to dry. Maybe he decided that he hates us after all. He doesn't, he used to love us, but then we sinned too much. And now he doesn't love us anymore. There are lots of verses of this sort. All the hairs on your head are numbered. I don't know how many hairs on your head. You know? His capacity for caring about you is so extraordinary. It's so great. It, it cannot be measured, and it cannot be counted, and it cannot be, you cannot estimate it. Like it's, if you said, God, I'm going to love you as much as you love me, rat's chance. Let me be able to do it. It's not, it's not, it's not possible. You, 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 can't, you can't possibly do it. He's thought of every angle, every perspective, everything, every, every inkling, every whim, every, like, there's, there is nothing in your life, every heartbeat he's measured, he's counted, he's planned it. There's nothing, literally no thing 
that has entered into your imagination that he does not know about, that he does not care about, that he has not thought about, that he has not figured out the best thing to do, the best way to treat you. The, like, he is perfect in every way. You can't, it's so vast, just stop, you know? There's no idea. But we don't believe that. And so we want to fill our garden with other plants. Because we know that this hobby is very comforting and that friend is very comforting and this person's opinion is very important. But his love is so great that if you really believed in it, you would not need any of those other things. And then what you would see when you've dealt with those things, what you see is that the thing that God is doing in you prospers. One of our early students in core team, uh, when she joined, after a few years, she grew very significantly. Her entire spiritual life was upended. Things that she wanted, she didn't want anymore. Just things were changing in her life. It was, it was awesome. And, and one day, we were having, I think it was, um, I can't remember if she was visiting us or we were having a conversation about something. And we are talking about, like, why this happened and how it happened. So when I first started the ministry, I think that, you know, I thought, I really thought that people would get really changed if we brought in the best speakers and the greatest anointing and, you know, saw miracles and things like that. And that's true. I still want that. But I realized that in her and in all of our students, it was not that, actually. The growth happened, and it wasn't because, I would like to think that it's just because of how awesome the ministry is. Um, but it's not that either. It happens, actually, and she, she used to talk about how confusing it was because every other Friday she would come to retreat and every other Sunday night she would get home. It was a whole weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It was a whole, back then it was a whole weekend. We did Sunday afternoon as well and then people went home. And about, on average, two hours for her to get to retreat, two hours to get home. And during the week she would be giving up a lot of time to do the things that we wanted her to do. She'd be calling restaurants for catering, for retreats, and um, you know, writing emails and making forms and just all sorts of stuff. Like, you know, and then she'd keep getting our schoolwork, doing less schoolwork. And, and there's nothing magical about any of that. And she's like, where does this all happen? And, and I said, you know, I, th I think it's happening just in the midst of all that stuff. Why is it that taking two hours or four hours out of your time is not only not harmful to you, but it's helpful to you? It's because with those four hours, what you would have done is just watch your favorite K-drama. And we're taking that out of you. We're not adding anything in. Forget, we will add something in at retreat, but, but let, first we you take out that you would have just wasted watching a movie or listening to music or yabbering away with your friends about something that's totally unimportant and irrelevant to your life. And you just take that and you put yourself on a train with just you and your Bible. Back then there was no Wi-Fi on the trains. Just you and your Bible and your Christian music. And you're just sitting there. You're not doing anything. You're not, it's not intercessor. And you're, not like, you're just chilling there. You and your Bible with nothing to do. And maybe sometimes you're even doing a little homework. And what we're doing is we're taking out, because she lost popularity in campus, a lot of her former friends didn't want to like her anymore. So we're taking away those friends that were not really friends. I didn't say this to her, I just thought this in my head. <laughs> those friends are not really friends. They're just choking the work that God wants to do in your life. And so what has actually happened is, in part, it's sure you're part of a new church, a new culture, a new set of things, but... but but the magic actually is what has been taken away. 
that time that you would not have stewarded well anyway, the hobbies that never got you anywhere, the people that were not adding anything to you. And when you take the thorns away, even if you don't add anything of God to it, the things that are already there, which there is a lot of, because you've been to a lot of things and you've experienced a lot of God and God has tried to touch you a lot or he's spoken to you a lot of the years. What happens is that that love for God that is in you naturally grows much faster and much more. Do you want to get somewhere in God? It's that easy. We can always look for the next conference, the next thing. I'm a big believer in, in, in moments of encounter, but I know plenty of people that have encountered hundreds and not thousands of times. And what will be much more significant is to deal with the thorns. And the way that you deal with the thorns, other than just the practical aspect of it, which is important, make good choices, but the way that you deal with the thorns is you begin to be more content with the love that God has for you and with the things that God is doing in your life. Imagine a world where you never married, never had children, never had friends. Or as many, many missionaries experienced through history, they never planted great churches, saw movements or revivals. But they were so content with doing it. So con- some, something in their relationship with God, you know, it was just, it was, that was enough. They would go to the ends of the earth and experience unthinkable things, at least compared to their life back home that they could have. There was uh, another well-known missionary to Tibet named Annie Taylor. She came from one of the richest families in Great Britain. Like her father, it was, she was so bizarrely wealthy. <laughs> I, she, I mean, she would have lived like a duchess at home and she left all of it, never married, went to Tibet for 45 years and slept on the ground, on the snow for years on end. Just, just, I, years and years, I mean, 40, like about 45 years she spent there. Years and years and years she spent there. I just, it's just sheer love. Like, it's just a sheer contentment with what God is, has done and is doing in your life. And if you could just grab a hold of that, you know, and that's all you need. And if you grab that, magic will begin to happen. I'm not against God's blessings. I'm very for God's blessings. It's a blessing to be married. Trust me. It's a blessing to have kids. It really is. It's a blessing to have friends. A few anyway, not too many. And good food can be a blessing, although sometimes it's, you know. But what you really need is, is not any of those things. What you really need is to clear out space so what God is doing in you can really grow. Do not think that throwing yourself at your work or at your religious duties or something else is the answer. It's, none of that is the answer. The answer is to really get to a place where somewhere in your, the deep place in your heart between you and God, it's just enough for you that God loves you and that you can love him in return. And if you were to empty your life of everything else, it wouldn't matter. And in that place, you'll find real fruitfulness.
real fruitfulness. And that's what I pray for you. That's what I pray over this church. That's what we have to offer to the world, to other believers. It's not a better religious program. It's, we're never going to get to the place where our, our church service is so awesome. If people would just come here on Sundays, then, you know, no, that's never going to happen. What we have to offer people is an example that even the most empty, uninteresting life imaginable, even $15 an hour as a, you know, a totally boring, but, but just so drawn by, so excited by the seed of God in my life. I'm just watching that thing prosper and grow. That, that's, that's the testimony. Do you know? That's what will really make a difference in others. There's um, so many more stories, but I, I know of a handful of stories where, you know, there were missionaries that were deeply, deeply persecuted, and then after they were persecuted, they just had such joy as they were being persecuted, and such peace. The people around them were just like, your God must be God, because how can you look like that when people are beating you? And I just feel like there's something of that that is so real. I wish that for you. I don't wish the beating on you. Although that may come. Oh, I said with a smile. Mm. That may come. <laughs> Not the beating, but, but I wish that joy and that peace. If you lost everything tomorrow, and you just start over again, that just that great, you know, Jesus loves me and I'm good with him. So. I think that this is a, a far more important obstacle for us as a church than not having more of God's glory. I keep praying for more of God's glory. I continue to pray for it. But this thing is much more significant as an obstacle for us. If you're a visitor here, I'm not talking about you. You don't need to be convicted. As far as members, this is a much bigger obstacle for us. It's not that God doesn't move. It's that he does. But then we just go back to everything else we love. And it doesn't grow. It doesn't prosper. You know? I understand. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to ask that as we're here this morning that you would do a mighty, mighty work in each and every single one of our hearts. Pray that, God, for our members. We pray that, God, for our visitors. Even if people don't want it, I just pray, God, that they were unlucky enough to be here this morning. And so just do it in them, Lord. A grace to see clearly not to be deceived by the attractiveness of other things, but to see clearly
It's not that we need more from you. It's that we need to do better with what you've already given to us. And to allow the things, God, that you've already sown in us to bear fruit in us. That we would steward the work that you've done with a good and pure heart. And in this moment now, I just pray that you would speak to every single person here and our friends and spiritual family that's on web stream. Reveal to us the thorns that choke our garden. Give us the courage to leave those things behind. We know, God, that we just can't have it all. We can't have the things of this world. All of our TV shows, all of our hobbies, all the religious things that we think are good and fine, things that other people expect of us, the things that we could get drawn into so easily. the love of a comfortable life. Lord, maybe not everybody wants to go all the way. And Lord, I know there's no condemnation in you at all. I know, God, that you still love us even if we're half-hearted. And you still love us, God, even if we're only slightly turned towards you. And I know, God, that you still care for us, even if we never do anything in you. And even if everything that you sow into us is just wasted because we prefer the world instead, even then, God, you still love us. I know that. And if that's who we are today, I know, Lord, that it's not your desire for us to be condemned. But God, if there's anyone in this room, if there's anyone that hears any of this, that says, Lord, I believe, help me believe, Lord, I want, help me to want. Then I pray that you fill them with strength, courage, and a conviction to let go of the things that need to be let go of, to make choices they need to make, to clear the field. 
don't have the years to waste, Lord. And we don't just want to be convicted over and over and over again and never respond, Lord. Some of us have been living with a love for this world and we have good excuses because we feel alone, because we feel like you don't work miracles for us and you don't see us and you, but those things are just lies. Those things are, are deceptions fed to us so that we could lean on untrustworthy things. I pray I pray Lord for grace this morning please 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 God, don't let us walk out of this room with the same thorns that we came in with. Please, God, this time, let it be real. Let there be a real and lasting change. Holy Spirit, please, on you now I trust you to touch every heart and to bring conviction and decisiveness for these our friends please please resolve to our hearts don't make our love cheap don't let it be a cheap love don't let it be a fair weather love don't let it be a love that only exists on Sundays or when we're at service don't let it be a love God that desires the applause of men success or fame but give us a love that says I'd rather have you than anything and if I have to be an outcast I'll be an outcast and if I have to be poor I'll be poor if I need to be alone then I'll be alone if I need to but I just I know there is a God who's created the universe. I know 
there is a God whose love is endless, can't be measured, it can't be known, it's endless. step into that more today. Help him. Touch him. Answer the cry of their heart. Help them to choose.